Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 110. Uh, very exciting. I'm trying to think if there's any... I didn't write them down. I'm trying to think if there's any announcements. There's none that I can think of off the top of my head, except, of course, for Alpha Omega Con, which will be in La Mirada, September 20th. I do not remember off the top of my head the name of the church, but if you go to alphaomegacon.com, uh, you can find out all the information there. To attend, it costs only $5, uh, and we will be there, uh, which is, sorry, Josh will not be there. He's going to be out of town, but uh, I will be there, likely with friends of the show, Jason Eakin and Reed Lackey, uh, and, and we will have a booth, and you can come up and talk to us, uh, and I'm just very excited to get to know uh, other vendors and get to know uh, any listener that might show up. So, uh, So please come to that. Uh, again, just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's so rare for me to actually speak, uh, to the, the audience that is in that the show is intended for. So I'm, I'm very excited, but I'm also trying to manage my expectations. But anyway, uh, okay. So I think that's probably, uh, about it. Uh, I will welcome in my co-host Josh Long. Josh. Hey, how you doing? Doing all right. Doing all right. Yeah. Okay, glad to hear it. I can tell. Yeah. I can see by your face. Yep. I wish this was a video show. Yeah. I don't. I think people can imagine that you, your face is not actually registering any joy. Yeah. You know, it's interesting on Facebook, anytime somebody posts a photo of me smiling, people will often comment on, hey, <laughs> there we go, stuff like that. And then I realize, like, man, most of my Facebook photos are of me smiling. So what is it yeah. that people, aside from my general demeanor and personality, like Maybe. what is it that people think that uh, I don't smile much? I like to laugh. I like to think that your first comment whenever you see those pictures is you don't immediately recognize that it's you and you go, what are you smiling about, jerk? And then you realize it's you and you're like, well, uh, all right. All right. Yeah, Usually sure my that, first thought is, sure oh, I hate the way I look when I smile. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so my big dumb round face. Anyway, so, uh, so we'll... We'll move on. Round like a plate. I like to I like to base my personality on uh, Oscar the Grouch. Oh, good. Just everything that is uh, what people like. I like to go the opposite. Hmm. And so far, it's worked pretty well for me. <laughs> I do struggle deeply with depression, but you know what? I feel like you know you can't make an omelet without uh, breaking some eggs. We all learned that uh, back in uh, home ec, right? Probably. Sure. Here's a homeschool question for you. Okay. So home ec is where you learn to like cook and sew and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything like that? That was just kind of my that life. That was just life. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't learn to sew. Okay. 
But I mean, I had to make my own meals for lunch usually. Oh, for a moment, I thought you said I had to make my own clothes, and I thought, like, <laughs> wow, yeah, your community. Oh, I forgot that you guys were in the middle of Amish country, right? Right. So, yeah, I mean, we we had the sheep in the backyard. We would, yeah, you had to shear, shear them. them, yeah, and then you know separate the wool with those weird clapper things. We oh, I love those. And, I like watching uh, them. Yeah, and then we had the loom, and we would, you know, we would make our clothes. Absolutely, but no sewing. No, it's too no. much technology. Yeah, well, we weren't allowed to have needles, right? Yes, because they're uh, of the devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like buttons. Oh, absolutely! Don't get me. Don't even get me started on buttons. That you know what? I'm in total sympathy with you when it comes to buttons. That's a for real Amish thing, though. They don't have buttons. Is that? I thought they didn't have. I thought they didn't have like zippers and they stuff. They don't have zippers either, but they don't even have buttons. They don't have buttons. How do they keep everything on? They have like some kind of hooks or something. I think. Oh, hooks. Okay. Hook seemed like seems more, worse. I yeah, know. Captain Hook. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't they think of that? Exactly. Whole religion, and they forgot about Captain Hook. Right. You know, I feel bad making fun of the Amish, and I guess I'm not even making fun of them because I'm astounded that they are able to live like that. And I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with what they're doing. I just could never, oh, yeah. ever do. As we sit here, talking into a microphone connected to a computer with a soundboard connected, as we sit under our electric light in an air-conditioned apartment in the middle of Los Angeles, yeah. I realize, and I got buttons all over me. Yeah. I have them, I've had them grafted onto my skin. Ooh. Um, oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I realize I am so far from a, an Amish existence that I do actually come to respect them a little bit. Yeah, I'm sure it's hard. Oh, no question about it. Uh, so, okay. We're going to continue our series. Uh, it's not a real series. It's unofficial. Uh, our series of movies that nobody has seen. <laughs> I was uh, going to say, I didn't know we were in a series, but yes. Boy, I, I can, we sure are. I can confirm that. Yeah. Be like, oh, nobody saw the Big Kahuna, so you know what? Let's really let's branch out and we'll talk about a most wanted man. Uh, not a lot of people saw that, so you know what? We'll we'll really double down on cheap thrills, yeah, uh, which is what we're talking about today. Um, and it is frustrating. I do, I you know, one of the reasons that we picked Gravity was because I knew a lot of people saw it and might be able to contribute to the conversation. But as it happens, uh, certain movies hit me uh, and. I guess it's not surprising that larger blockbusters are less likely to hit me emotionally and thematically yeah. than smaller, not necessarily independent, but just smaller, lesser-known films, more personal films, mm-hmm. because blockbusters are meant to be quite exactly the opposite of personal. Yeah. Um, so Nowadays, uh, they're mostly just meant to evoke something that you liked in the mid-'80s and no make you come back it. to see that again. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a guy online that I've that I had been hearing about for many years, uh, but actually just uh, discovered him called the uh, Nostalgia Critic, and uh, I sometimes I vehemently disagree with his opinion. Sometimes even disagree with his philosophy, uh, but it is interesting. He goes back and just he's about our age. He goes back and watches stuff that we grew up with, and says if it holds up or not. Uh, spoilers: most of it does not. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so uh, he's like ice cream. We always used to love when we were kids, but is it really any good? No, it's not. He took a bite and just threw up all over his desk. 
It was really quite disgusting. I'd much rather have caviar. Yeah, because when you're an adult, that's how you eat. Right. You know, you just... Just big spoonfuls of caviar. Champagne wishes and caviar dreams. (laughs) So, and oddly enough, it seems appropriate that we would talk about that as we get into this film, Cheap Thrills. So, uh, full disclosure, uh, both you and I know the lead actor of Cheap Thrills. Sure do. I, I had heard about the film as a function of him. His name is Pat Healy. Um, I knew about the film through him for a long time, and it sounded very good. So by the time I watched it, it's possible that I was predisposed to liking it just because somebody I knew was in it, uh, along with other people that I liked. But I don't think that's... I think that only carries the movie so far. But I figure I should mention it uh, just because... uh, it's currently in my top 10 uh, of the year. Uh, and that's something that has happened for the last few years is movies that wind up in my top 10 are uh, often involve people that I, that I know in some way. Often involve Pat Healy. <laughs> they do often involve Pat Healy, yes. Um, and so, uh, so I wanted to throw that out there. Um, I don't necessarily give the movie a free pass, but I do think it's one of those things that when you live out here long enough... Uh, and you get involved. You get involved with people who have a similar taste as you. And then, if they're making movies, it stands to reason that they will be in movie. They're in movies that you like. Yeah. Uh, and so, I'm not really surprised that I enjoyed Cheap Thrills as much as I did. So, uh, directed by E. L. Katz and written by David. I'm, gonna, I'm probably gonna. I'm gonna mess up both of these names. Li- uh, most likely, David Churcherillo. Churcherio, I don't know, and Trent Haga. That's two. That's three total A's in that last name out yeah. of five letters. Um, yeah, the one's got three I's and the other's got three A's. Yeah, I don't like it. All right, new movie. You, got, you guys, yeah, you know, we're moving on to the companion <laughs> film written by old David Mamet. David Mamet? Man, a lot of people, including me, thought that's what it was. Oh, really? Add a second T. Well, when I was a kid, it's like, yeah. add a second T. And then we're all on board. We all know exactly. Nobody says Dashiell Hammett. They say <laughs> Dashiell Hammett. You know why? Two T's. Yeah. So, sorry. Uh, it's the end of the evening, and I've been working all day. and uh, Working in a coal mine. If I could remember any other lyrics of that song, I would quote them. Working in a coal mine, working down. Down, down, down. That might be it. I don't like that. I don't like when words are repeated. Repeated. (laughs) Moving on. We need to move on. So, okay, Cheap Thrills uh, is about a family man. He's uh, married. He has a young child, played by Pat Healy of The Innkeepers and a number of other films. Pat Healy plays the father, not not the child. Indeed, yes. Um you might also know him from the popular web series, The Unemployed Mind. You might. Written and directed by our own Josh Long. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, he's this husband and father working as a mechanic, but uh, I think an aspiring writer at one point, probably not so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it starts with him basically uh, getting laid off from his job. Mm-hmm. And he and his wife are already a little bit behind on their, uh, on their rent. There's a possibility they're going to lose the house. And so he's not feeling too great. Uh, and he uh, 
sorry, when I say lose the house, I mean like get kicked, be evicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he decides he's going to go out and get a drink because he's not feeling too great. And while he is at a bar, he runs across an old friend of his uh, that he went to high school with and hasn't talked to in a number of years, played by Ethan Embry. And this guy has fallen on some rough times himself and has become something of a... I'm not even sure how you would describe what he is. He's kind of a thug. He's, he's kind of like what Rocky is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's the like the first uh, Rocky movie. Yeah, he, he probably works for like... A loan shark or a somebody. A loan shark, yeah. yeah. And so, um, so he happens... He just talks about like, that's what I've been doing. And, uh, and it's very harrowing but then at this bar uh pat healy plays a guy named craig ethan Embry plays a guy named vince so craig and vince run across this couple played by david keckner and sarah paxton and this couple has a great deal of money and they decide they're going to play this game uh all night long in which they're going to challenge craig and vince to do various things for money and it's stuff like five hundred dollars to whoever can hold his breath the longest. Yeah, and they they range from uh, from embarrassing to dangerous. Let's yes, say. very much so. And uh, and you know there's and there's you know mutilation involved and and that sort of thing. And so it's very it, it and by of course by the end of the film, I mean it gets pretty pretty dark. Mm-hmm. Um. And when I saw the film, I already knew, not unlike the film Killing Them Softly, which this episode, by the way, is going to probably echo that episode a little bit, uh, right down to the companion film being uh, based on a David Mamet play. Um, there, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, there is a, a theme to various TV shows and uh, films of the last, I'm going to say, two or three years in which um, people are really coming to grips with the fact that this economy is not great Mm -hmm. Uh, and people are losing jobs, people aren't making a great deal of money. Uh, A lot has been made of the very real disparity between the haves and have-nots and people talk about the disappearing middle class. Um, And that's something that... uh, that has come about only recently. Um, you know, and, and it was discussed, uh, it was examined going the other way in the Wolf of wall street. Mm. And so, uh, so I knew going in the cheap thrills in which you have, uh, the idle rich pitting two desperate poor guys against each other for their own amusement. It's like, okay, that uh, already I can tell there's going to be some pretty heavy commentary in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed there is, and we'll talk more about that later. But uh, one thing that I, I guess I, I expected, but not to the extent that it was there, is that Cheap Thrills is also a very, very dark comedy. Yeah. Uh, I laughed a lot. Mm-hmm. I felt bad when I was laughing <laughs> often. Yeah, I saw it in a, in, a, in a theater full of people who were howling for most of the movie. Um, so yeah, while it does, does deal with those more serious things and does get pretty dark at moments, uh, there's still a lot of really funny parts, but it balances it well. It's one of those kind of movies that, um, by the time it gets to the end, 
even the more even the more callous laughers in that audience really weren't laughing at some of those parts because there's moments that they know how to play up and how to and how to uh, tone down and make them serious. You said tone down, and so let's focus on that word tone. This film has a has a consistent tone. It's not unlike a movie like Sideways, mm. uh, in some ways, in that uh, anytime a movie balances drama and comedy, uh, man, it needs to be very careful because the comedy can't be too zany, or maybe it can. But they need to have the actors play it just right. They can't mm-hmm. be in on the joke. They have yeah. to be completely committed. But then the drama also can't be too, you know, it can't be ordinary people. Mm-hmm. But even, but maybe there's a little bit of that in there as well. But they can't overplay that. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it falls on the actors. A lot of it falls on, I think, probably even the editor to make sure that the pacing is, is consistent and they know when to pick it up and when to scale it back and stuff like that. So... Uh, one thing that really impressed me about Cheap Thrills is how it's very much, it's a film that just exists very much on its own terms. It's hard to classify it as a comedy. It's hard to classify it as a drama. It's yeah. its own thing. Um, and yeah, I watched it uh, with my wife. I had to review it for Battleship Pretension, and so I got an online screener, so we just watched it at home. Uh, so I have not had the pleasure of watching it with a theater full of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but watching it with my wife was certainly enough, because she had plenty of reactions. Uh, <laughs> as did I, incidentally. And you know, it's interesting, I, I, I feel like a lot of the comedy, strangely enough, I'm reminded of the comedy of Silent comedian Harold Lloyd, who made a film called Safety Last, uh, but all, he he tended to make movies that dealt with uh, thrill comedy. Mm-hmm, yeah, which was okay. People laugh for a number of reasons. One of them is to liter- to relieve tension. Yeah, uh, and so if you watch Safety Last, uh, and then other films like there's one called Never Weekend. There's one called. Uh, girl shy uh in which there's just the main character gets himself into all kinds of death defying circumstances and we're just watching and our hearts are racing because even though we know that this comedy is likely not going to end with this character dying uh we still instinctively are reacting like oh my gosh this is so tiresome and then he'll have little moments that relieve that and and the laughter just flows naturally yeah. because we're just looking for the opportunity to relieve that tension if only a little bit yeah and cheap thrills oddly enough reminded me of that the laughter comes from a certain degree of in uh incredulity on the part of the audience being like i can't even believe what i'm watching yeah but also there's moments of such tension that when it was it is cut with uh, a humorous line or or you know an amusing facial reaction or something like that i think the laughter comes from that because i think people look at this circumstance and they want to laugh Mm -hmm. some of it is the ridiculousness of the situation ridiculousness of the situation and some of it is man this is rough please give me a reason to laugh you did thank you i will oblige you Mm. um but that's just my my opinion and that's and you don't run across a lot of comedies like that anymore where people are so desperate to laugh uh so we'll talk about the, the specifics, like uh, like the acting in a moment. But first, uh, so yeah, I, 
I think I've talked a little bit about my reaction to the film. Uh, I came away from it really loving it, really feeling like I was invested in the characters. You know, I laughed when I needed to laugh. I I don't know if I ever got teary-eyed, but I mean, I certainly got emotionally invested. Like you have characters who are telling each other off at times, and it's really tense. And it, but it also feels very real mm. throughout. Um, and the film just really had me the whole time. Uh, what was your? How about this? Expectation going in, but then also your just general reaction to the film. Mm-hmm. I was hearing a lot about it because I had. Uh Actually, through Twitter, because... Um, yeah, that's, it kind of went viral a little bit. Yeah, and uh, the the actors from it were putting a lot of stuff out there, you know, uh, echoing a lot of positive sentiments that people who had a chance to see the movie were putting up uh, on social media. So um, I was seeing a lot of that and hearing a lot of positive things, so I was expecting something. Yeah, I was expecting a, a good movie, and I, I, I think I got... Kind of what I expected, yeah. I I, uh, I enjoyed it overall. I thought it was funny. I thought it dealt with the subject matter well. I thought it had some really strong images, both visually and um, uh, metaphorically, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I liked it a lot. Uh, in our best of pictures uh, mini-sodes, one thing that we've been leaning towards is this idea of, uh, is this a film we would recommend, or if somebody was going to see it, would we warn mm-hmm. them away from it? Uh, and with a film like <laughs> Cheap Thrills... It depends which, on the type of person exactly. you're talking to. With a film like Cheap Thrills, I, I really enjoy, if not straight-up love the movie, uh, but that is a far cry from recommending it. Not unlike yeah. another film that featured Pat Healy compliance, Mm. which is a film that I reacted to, you know, very strongly and really loved in a lot of ways. Um, not unlike not for the faint of heart, that one very much not. Uh, this one at least has some laughs, but somehow, somehow the fact that this has comedic elements makes it darker in some ways. It makes it more like withering. Yeah. Somehow. Um, which seems, almost nefarious like they're getting away with something um so okay uh so we'll talk a little bit about uh about the the style of the film and that sort of thing uh one thing i really enjoy is the the color palette uh there are very strong colors Mm -hmm. uh you know parts of it take place in a bar a lot of it takes place at night and so uh there's very very, it's very kind of dark moody lighting which is very appropriate for the tone and it's something that actually that will be shared with um the companion film Mm. but uh yeah, so I, I love the way that it's shot. I, I really like, as I said, I like the way that it's that it's cut together. But uh, as I said before, I do think that a lot of this is really hinged on the actors and their willingness to just go where they need to go. Mm-hmm. And there there are four main characters really, and all four of them are really wonderful. Um, I will talk about our friend Pat. Um, and say that uh, you know he was in a film a few years ago called uh, the uh, called Great World of Sound, in which he played a, a similar type of character, a guy who's uh, something of a sad sack and is a bit desperate for money and doesn't really know what to do, feels a little directionless in his life, um, and so gets involved. It's a wonderful film, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Uh, gets involved in this thing that may be a scam, uh, and so the the character is very similar to that. I think uh, I think that film might have might have influenced his casting in this film. Uh, hmm. I think he did an interview recently with Mark Marin, um, in which I think he mentioned that, but, 
anyway, and so you know, you have to. He is our emotional entry point into this film. Yeah, and so every step of the way, even when he's doing things that are very outlandish, we need to be able to see how he arrived there emotionally, and and this idea of well, once he's once somebody has done one thing. It may be, it may not be easy, but it will be easier for them to then do another. Thing. Yeah, and it breaks down each next thing. That's the thing. It has to go from very simple things. It has to go from zero to sixty. Yeah, and it has to earn that um, yeah. that progression. And I think it does that very well by, um, uh, I think by ratcheting it up just by believable enough increments. Yeah, because I it, it doesn't ever feel like it jumps to all of a sudden. Now they're doing something for money that I don't think they would do. Yeah, there's um, just at no point did I. I mean, sorry, I I often thought whoa, but only because of what I'm seeing. Never whoa, like you didn't sell this. I yeah. don't believe yeah. that this would happen. Yeah, I always believed it would happen. Mm-hmm. And given the events of the film, that's really saying something. Yeah, and especially for a character like like Craig. Um, a guy who would never dream of doing even some of the smaller things in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to, you know, it's, it's just a progressive escalation and we need to be with him every step of the way. So yeah. there's a lot of weight on his shoulders, mm-hmm. but that is not to take away from the rest of the cast. I especially, I'll get to David Kegner in a moment who I think is really doing something special, but, uh, I will say, uh, Ethan Embry as Vince, uh, I like Ethan Embry as an actor. I've liked him for a long time. Uh, he's been around since the early 90s, back when I believe his name was Ethan Randall. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in a movie called Empire Records that I mm-hmm. did not like him in, but that is not his fault. Uh, you know, just in the same way that I didn't like Philip Seymour Hoffman in Twister. Uh, there, was a cer- there was a certain type of character that would show up in movies in the 90s. And... Uh, uh. When a good actor has to play them, it is an unfortunate thing. Mm. Um, but he was in That Thing You Do. Uh, he went on to be in uh, you know, Can't Hardly Wait. He was in a show, a short-lived show on uh, Showtime called uh, Brotherhood that he mm. was very good in. Uh, so he's, uh, he was recently in – oh, it hasn't come out yet. Oops. He's in a movie called The Guest that's coming out oh, okay. soon. Uh, in which he acts alongside uh, somebody that you know, oddly enough, Joel David Moore. So Joel's um, in the guest. Yep, I don't know that. So, uh, but in this, he also has a fair amount of heavy lifting to do as well, mm-hmm. because he's playing a character that ha- that arrived arrived at a place of moral compromise a few years ago. Mm-hmm. But he also has a compass. He, he, hasn't, he hasn't given up completely. He's hurt people. He's collected money. But he, he, you know, there are a few key things that he would never do. Yeah. And plus, uh, he, he, he doesn't have as many qualms in his job when he has to just beat up people right. he doesn't know. But Craig is a friend of his. So yeah. there is that block as well. He has to get over that. And... He he has a hard job as an actor in that um, we don't know his backstory as clearly as we do Craig's. We right. we live with Craig for the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie, so we know where he's coming from exactly. And we have to understand um, – uh, we have to understand Vince as a character more given less uh, of that kind of exposition. And I think it, it 
totally sells. And I will say this. This is in the writing, it's in the character design, and it's in the performance. We may know, we may directly know less about Vince, but we know Vince. I mean, and this is going to sound judgmental, and I apologize, I don't, this is not what I mean, but you, you, we feel exactly like Craig does. There are people that I am Facebook friends with, people that I knew in high school. Not necessarily close, but I knew them. Hung out with them maybe a few times. And since then, their life, uh, I'm sure they're probably happy with their life. But on the outside, they don't, their life does not look particularly happy. And it looks like, you know, fairly empty. But of course, that's on the outside. And maybe those people are still good, decent people. But at the same time, I also then know some friends who got involved with drugs and drug dealing and that sort of thing. And, and Vince reminded me of them and Hmm. just the, the sadness that I have felt knowing where they ended up. And so Vince is something of a tragic character because we see that there's decency in him, Mm -hmm. but he had to give that up. Not completely, but he had to give up parts of that a while ago. And, and what I really like between these two characters is that they do relate to each other like old friends. Old friends that are constantly, that are able to be buddies, but they have strong opinions about how the other person turned out. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of how, because of, you know, what I just said about Vince. I mean, again, like even what I just said sounded judgmental. It's, again, I, I apologize if it sounded that way. It's more just, I'm often heartbroken when I, when I look at these, mm, these old right, friends. Right. Um, but you know, with, with Craig, he has more than a little condemnation of Vince's lifestyle as well. He should somebody who is an enforcer and hurts people <laughs> for money. That's that, that, that is a career worthy of condemnation. Um, but he, he just thinks he's a real scumbag and just thinks he's better than, than Vince is. And then Vince calls him out on that and says, Hey, you're here with me. And also, didn't you want to be a writer? Why'd you give up on that? Was that too hard? It just yeah. And just the way these two go after each other, and they know what buttons to push. It does. I absolutely buy, and this is a hard thing to sell in movies. Uh, I buy a previous relationship. I believe oh, yeah. that they know each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's uh, that's Ethan Embry. It's a really wonderful performance. I, re- mm-hmm. I I wish more people had seen the film for a number yeah. of reasons. One of one of the reasons is that Ethan Embry is a very good actor. I mean, all these people do great, but his performance is the kind that could get him different types of roles. Uh, but I guess between like brotherhood and then his brief role in the guest and then this, uh, I guess he's moving more towards just edgy material, edgier material in general, but it's cool. But yeah, so, um, I will say very briefly, Sarah Paxton, there's not a lot to her character. She is, you know, uh, the rich young wife who just sort of sits back bemused and uh, observes everything. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting if you've seen the innkeepers, did you ever see the innkeepers? Mm-hmm. Would you ever want to watch it? Maybe. Okay. It also stars Pat Healy. I'm aware. <sighs> that guy shows up in everything. <laughs> um, it's a very insular world. I'll say that. Uh, like the innkeepers was uh, directed by Ty West who like moderated, uh, Q and A Q&A with the directors of um, Entrance, 
mm. uh, for the DVD of that film. Um, and then, of course, I mean, I know I know those guys introduced to them by Josh Fadum, who's really good friends with Pat Healy. Yeah, uh, it's just strange. Everything in Los Angeles, there are little clusters of people, and they all <laughs> it's it's very interesting. But anyway. Uh, but yeah, Sarah Paxson does a very good job of just seeming like I'm reminded of somebody like, okay, this is going to sound weird. I'm reminded in the Bible of like Jezebel, (laughs) just like this queen who is just removed from any kind of emotional investment in what she is watching. Mm -hmm. Uh, and even, even maybe more so than the character of Colin played by David Koechner, uh, her character's husband, um, who does things for her and is often a mouthpiece. Uh, she just sits back and just watches and somehow it, it's infuriating to look at her. Yeah. But if you see her in cheap, Thr- uh, sorry, if you see her in the innkeepers where she's this sweet, innocent young woman, it's amazing. It's a how totally different, different type of character. Is. That's cool. Yeah. Um, which, okay. So then we will now arrive at David Koechner who, People have seen in The Office. They saw him in Anchorman. They've seen him. He's been around for, you know, a couple of decades at this point. Yeah. Uh, when I heard that he was in this and the type of character he was playing, I was so excited. I was excited. Like, you know, I don't want to take anything away from the other cast members. I knew that they could do what they were going to do, and I was excited to see that. But knowing that David Koechner is not often called to be to play this level of darkness, mm-hmm. I was. But also knowing how much of a bully he can be in like the office, yeah, I and they usually it's usually used to comical effect in all those other things, almost as just like a, a farcical character. And yeah. in this, he kind of turns that into a more realistic type of thing, while still yeah. being just as silly and just as just as funny as he can be. Absolutely, and he is he's often very funny. But you hate him. <laughs> you hate this man and what he is doing. Yeah. Uh, there, but the thing is, the character is, uh, there are many quirky, silly things about him. There's one moment that I love, and it's when Vince and Craig decide they want to try and rob uh, Colin and Violet. Like, they're at their house. They know that there's a lot of money around, so they just decide... Let's get them, yeah. and we'll just take the money and leave. We don't have to keep doing this thing. And there's this, and this is a nice little bit of editing, where, um, where I think Vince he like pulls a knife and then just very quickly happens to look at this little at a <laughs> at a, a photo of Colin David Koechner in a uh, karate outfit holding two two trophies. <laughs> And just looking very seriously in the camera. And so you just see him look, and then a quick cut back back to his face of like, huh, I wonder. And then you have Colin just beat the crap out of him <laughs> because he is an expert in this. And so it's it's very funny. And, of course, this guy, you know, when you're as much of a jerk as Colin is, you do sort of need to be able to back it up physically. Yeah. And he does, and it's a very – and when you watch it, you just think like, of course he would be that. <laughs> um but yeah, but his character goes to some very dark places, and every once in a while, and I might be projecting onto the character, uh, I'll run this by you and see what you think. I get, every once in a while, a certain degree of self-hatred. Just a certain degree. Yeah, I can see that, because he's not totally, like, 
it's not a total, uh, totally just depraved enjoyment of all these terrible things. There's, right. um, uh, almost like a displeasure that this is even possible at times. Yeah. Um, and I think he and her both kind of represent different types of the, the, the tired board American, I guess, different parts of the american populace she's kind of the the bored one that things have to be continually escalating because the law of diminishing returns and um eventually is just not kind of interested in anything anymore and he has kind of that like party boy frat boy lifestyle or uh, attitude anyway but um there's an emptiness at the root of that and when you look at the two of them their relationship. She is the bored one, and she's younger than he is. She's attractive. Mm-hmm. He's a middle-aged guy who's bald and a little bit overweight and is overbearing. And I think we're aware that she's probably with him because he's rich, and he probably knows it too. Yeah. Uh, and so um, so there's even a scene, and I don't want to give too much away for those that maybe haven't seen it, but there is a scene in which... Um, one of the bets or one of the challenges or whatever you want to call it is for somebody to, I won't say who it is for somebody to have sex with her. And you would think like, well, now it's involving his own Colin's own wife. And she's going to potentially have sex with somebody that isn't him. And then eventually it winds up happening. And while it's happening, he sits on the sideline and masturbates. And it's like, there's a lot of disturbing elements, but in that moment, just like how, like I don't feel bad for him, but it is sad. Mm -hmm. It's a sad thing that this is his life. This is who he is. Like as degrading as it is often of other people for his own amusement, like this is a, a degrading moment for him as well. And so, uh, so that scene combined with a few other things here and there lead me to think that like he's a probably a deeply unhappy character mm-hmm. and it, it's like what you're saying like there's a frat boy quality to him that might be masking something mm-hmm. and when i say might be i'm gonna say probably probably yeah so i'm sorry did you mm-hmm. wanted to uh so i i'll just say that like uh all four of the performances are great and each of them you know it's interesting like you just mentioned you know, Violet and Colin, like all four characters exist fully formed as characters, but they are all representative of something. Yeah. Um, like I said, Craig is our entry point. He is us. Mm -hmm. He's trying to play by the rules. He's, he's, you know, he's start, he's got a family. He's trying to, you know, things maybe didn't go the way he wanted to, but he's still, there are still the things that he's happy about. He's not unhappy in his marriage. He's not unhappy to be a father. You know, he loves his family and and is perfectly willing to live for them. And so, but he wants to play by the rules and sometimes the rules let you down. But then there's Vince who maybe tried to do that and is willing to break the rules, but still has a code of honor. You have, and then of course, these two people being pitted against each other. Then you have Colin who is a certain type of aggressive, very hands-on like representative of the elites or just the people in charge 
uh, not and it doesn't have to just merely be rich people. It could it could just be anybody who is removed from the consequences of their own actions. Mm. It could be a government official. It could be a rich person. It could be any number of things. Uh, and then, if, but he's still at least hands on because then you have Violet who just watches it all from afar, like some kind of you know Marie Antoinette or something <laughs> like that. Uh, so, you know, that is the power of this film. And I know that there are some people that have reviewed it and just say that it's just, it's merely sadistic. And why did I watch this? It's just this geek show kind of thing. Uh, most people have reviewed it favorably, but there are some people that I think in the same way that, it, that there are people that got very angry at funny games, the oh, yeah. Michelle Haneke film, um, that just think, why did I have to watch this? What can I get out of it? And I think just from a metaphorical standpoint, you can get tons mm-hmm. out of this film, especially as a metaphor for our current, you know, economic situation. Um, and just this idea of, you know, like I'm, you know, as I've said in many sodes past, I'm not somebody who instinctively condemns the rich solely because they are rich, mm-hmm. but there is, there are certainly a lot of, certainly a lot of rich people who are very much removed from the day-to-day grind of regular people like you and me. Mm-hmm. But then of course, an argument could be made and I'll talk about it a little bit later. An argument could be made that you and I are removed from people. There are people that are much worse off than you and I. Oh yeah. And yet you and I still, we still worry about like where's the, where's next month's money going to come from mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And what happens if, what happens if I lose my job? What I'm screwed. Cause what can I do then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, you and I still live in that fear and then there are people who wish they had our problems, and then you and I wish we had somebody else's problems, and just that's the environment that you know. That's maybe kind of the dark side of the American dream, uh, or just the the American system. Uh, so, uh, and along those lines, I will bring up the companion film, which is James Foley's Glengarry Glen Ross, based on the play by David Mamet, and he wrote the screenplay himself. And in a rare moment of candor, David Mamet has said that he thinks the screenplay is better than his original play. Um, And so, uh, you know, I I think I've talked about this on the show before, um, and I know that I've talked about it on Battleship Pretension before, and it's possible many of you have seen it. Uh, So I won't go into a lot of it, but it's basically about these real estate salesmen who are... You know, things aren't going well for them. There's really only one salesman that's really doing well. The rest are struggling. There's a sales contest going on right now. Uh, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Second pri- <laughs> anybody, anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. <laughs> Third prize is you're fired. Now, this is never stated, but I'm going to assume fourth prize is also you're fired. Uh, it'd be weird if third prize is you're fired and fourth prize is another set of steak knives. Um, but uh, so it's, it's basically four uh, salesmen and then there's the, the office manager and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And you see them uh, over the course of the film uh, trying to make sales and, and but talking with each other about how bad things have gotten, how mm-hmm. things used to, how good things used to be, how good they could be again. Uh, and you just get a real sense of palpable frustration with these people. Mm-hmm. But then you have one of them entertain the idea of robbing the office uh, specifically to get these things called leads, which are just little cards with like names, phone numbers, and addresses of people that were interested in this real estate. 
and these guys basically are just trying to milk old leads, people who have not who haven't bought and aren't going to buy. Mm-hmm. So the new leads, everything's fresh. It's a new. It's a wonderful representative of like it's a new start for them. Yeah, and uh, but they're not allowed to have them. Only the people you know, only the people that sell are allowed to have them, which seems ironic because it would appear they don't need them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. Um, so a, a scheme is hatched to rob the office and steal the new leads and sell them to a, uh, a rival real estate company. Mm-hmm. And that in fact does happen. There's a clear, if you think in terms of a play, it's a two act play and you can see where the act break is. Cause yeah. when the first act happens over the course of an evening, the next act happens the next morning. Right. And so after the office has been broken into and robbed, the leads have been stolen along with a number of other things. So, you know, already we've got this situation where you have a bunch of guys that are, you know, I would never want to earn my living as a salesman. It sounds so stressful because you live sale to sale. Mm -hmm. Now, admittedly, you can make a big sale and you're good for a month. Or it could be a small sale, and it's like, okay, I literally need to get the next one. Otherwise, I'm good for a few days, maybe. Um, and so it just uh, sounds exhausting to me. And there's a wonderful documentary. I don't know if you've ever seen it called Salesman. Uh, oh, I've wanted to see that, and I never have. Boy, oh, boy. It's supposed to be one of the better ones ever. Uh, yeah, it's one of the best I've ever seen. But get ready, because it is rough. It yeah. is rough because you, you go with these people on sales calls, and you can see the desperation. We know that, how desperate they are, but you can see it uh, as they're doing their pitch, and they're trying not to seem desperate, which makes it seem even worse. Mm-hmm. It is, ugh, <laughs> makes your skin crawl. Um, not because these guys are sleazy, but because like you just it's so uncomfortable to watch. That's that similar kind of desperation you see in the office a little bit too, the British one at least. Yeah. Um, and you see a little bit in, in a little early bit seasons, earlier of the seasons of the American. Office. Yeah. But, but I feel like you see that, especially in David Brent, even especially towards the very end of the season and, and, uh, in the, the finale slash the, yeah. the Christmas special, um, is a similar type of, <laughs> he becomes a salesman at some point, doesn't he? I mean, he always was at one way or another, yeah. but, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a stressful job. Yeah. And, and so that's the, the job that these guys have and they like the job, but they are now all dealing with the frustration of it not going well. And the management, uh, guys that we never see, that's the thing that David Mamet was very good at in his plays, uh, was making full characters out of people that never show up. And so the guys who run the company, it's Mitch and Murray. And they make the rules, and they decide, here's the, here's the sales contest. Third prize is you're fired. They decide. The new leads go to the, to the closers. They make these decisions that are going to put two guys out of a job and make everybody who's left just terrified. Mm-hmm. And it just sounds so, so miserable. And the fact that it's a sales contest now, not unlike Cheap Thrills, these guys are literally pitted against each other. And it comes out. You see how quickly they turn on each other and just tear into each other the way that Craig and Vince do in Cheap Thrills. And all because, you know, there's a scrap of a reward, but there's also the threat of, you know, unemployment, you know, and that sort of thing. And they do it with pretty much, with impunity for the most part. And then, that's the thing. When the office is robbed, Mitch and Murray, 
as represented by their office manager, played by, by Kevin Spacey, um, they make it clear that whoever robbed the office is going to go to jail. They're going to press full charges. Like, the idea of somebody being pushed to their brink, who cares? They don't care. And admittedly, like, robbery is a bad thing. You, you want there to be consequences for it, but they don't care. They, it doesn't matter who it is. doesn't matter how sympathetic they are. doesn't matter how long they've been with the company. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how stressful their personal situation is. They're going to go to jail because they, you know, did this horrible thing. And it is a pretty tough thing, but, you know, people aren't getting physically hurt like in Cheap Thrills. <laughs> but um, so the two films seem very similar to me. You know, as I mentioned, um, we're going to be talking about similar themes to uh, Killing, Killing Them Softly. Softly. And the companion film there was American Buffalo. Mm. Um, this is something that Mamet wrote a lot about uh, as a playwright. Um, he often was kind of the voice of like the working class and that sort of thing. And even though it's arguable whether a real estate salesman is like a working class guy, they certainly seem like it. Mm. Um, and their job is no less stressful than somebody who's working in a factory or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot about how how people will turn on each other. Even these, it, it's not it's not like the sort of thing about the common man, or it is showing the the, or it's just expressing the poor, sad state that the common yeah. man is in. It's kind of uh, examining the the uh, what happens when those people are pushed to the brink and how they'll eat each other alive, essentially. Yeah, yeah. and it's I mean it's. Something that resonates with a lot of us, I'm sure. I have some uh, quotes here from Glengarry Glen Ross, uh, and that'll and we'll move into some of the the themes of of these films and what we can get from them. But uh, uh, by the way, it's very hard to quote Glengarry Glen Ross on a Christian show. Uh, so, uh, so there's a character named. Uh, and by the way, I will say if you if you listening to this, if you've not seen Glengarry Glen Ross. Seek it out. It's some of the best acting you'll ever see. This is the cast we're looking at. Jack Lemmon, Al Pacino, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, Alec Baldwin, Kevin Spacey, uh, Jonathan Price. I mean, it's it's crazy. Like, there's major Oscar-worthy talent there. Um, and in some cases, uh, you know, there's some Oscar winners in there. Uh, Al Pacino was actually nominated for Best Supporting Actor uh, for this film. And so it's it's very much worth seeing. So, um, so I'll quote, uh, I'll do a couple quotes real quick. Um, and just know that I'm paraphrasing them. So, uh, Ed Harris's character, uh, when he enters the office, I think it's one of the first things that he says when he, in the film is he comes in and says the rich get richer. That's the law of the land, which when it comes to the leads, that's absolutely true. Uh, and then Al, uh, sorry, Alec Baldwin's character who isn't actually given a name, uh, in the film, but officially his character's name is Blake. Mm-hmm. Um, he's talking, he comes in to quote unquote, inspire the salesman. And all he does is basically bully them into doing better. Uh, and he just really tears into them. And he talks about, he talks to Ed Harris's character and talks about like, yeah, uh, the reason that I'm able to talk to you like this is because I make so much money. And so he comes and he says, you see, pal, that's who I am. And you're nothing. Nice guy. I don't care. Good father. Go home and play with your kids. I mean, it re- he really cuts to the, the essence of it. It's like the only way you get respect, the only way you're even allowed a voice is if you do well, is if you have money. You know, and one thing that I'm always, uh, you know, 
it's a bit of genius on the part of David Mamet that in the sales contest, the one guy who isn't uh, sorry in the sales meeting uh, with uh, Alec Baldwin's character, the one guy that isn't there is Al Pacino's character who's doing the best. Right. Uh, Everybody's getting yelled at except for him. Yeah, and so he literally doesn't even have to be berated but at the same time he's the one doing the best and he's in a he's a very aggressive personality i would have i would have so loved to watch these two guys go at each other yeah but that's the thing is because well later on even uh al pacino's character kind of uh, responds to the the attitudes that they're getting from the oh, yeah. the higher up so he he gets moments to kind of yeah speak against that uh that perception but uh never never directly to yeah this brassy character that alec baldwin brings in quite literally brassy did you use that word on purpose <laughs> i didn't okay um that'll make more sense when you watch the movie everybody um okay so uh and then a constant refrain is always be closing abc a always bbc closing always be closing always be closing what's that from Oh, that's from Glengarry Glen Ross. Oh, I see. Um, and that's how he says it. It's a, it's a, by the way, again, wonderful performances all around. Alec Baldwin's in the film, maybe eight minutes. It's one of the bo- most amazing eight minutes you'll ever see. Um, so, uh, so, okay. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the idea of things going poorly, particularly financially, uh, for people. And what is the breaking point? What is the role of morality and certainly a Christian morality when things are, when you're, when you're up against the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously our job is to say that God will provide and I've got a bunch of Bible verses and I'll read them and <laughs> we'll all agree and all that. Uh, that's our job. That's our job. Nobody pays me, but, uh, although I do pay you quite handsomely, mm-hmm. it's really starting to hurt in Legos though. Yeah. Lego, Lego cash. Yeah. But you love Legos. Yeah. They're delicious. <laughs> did you ever did you ever play Legos when you were a kid? Oh yeah. Okay. What was your preferred genre? With Legos, I think it was space. I did space and pirates. I went very much two I had different some directions. Of the pirate ones. Those were yeah. good ones too. Yeah. When my parents got me the pirate ship for Christmas, oh my gosh! Are you kidding me? Mm. It's one of the best days of my life. Mm-hmm. Moving on. <laughs> and that's and you know it's interesting. Of course, now we're just uh, we're just making a, a joke about like ah this stuff that we got from our parents, you know. And, uh, of course, there are some people out there. I have no doubt that there will be a time when, like, when you and your wife have a kid and Jen and I have a kid and we would love to lavish toys on them around Christmas. And it's like, eh, we can't go as crazy as we yeah. would like. Well, all you know? they're going to want is... Uh, Their two front teeth? Maybe. I can give them that. Well, eventually. Yeah, that's true. I can't yeah. do a whole lot about that. Just be that. patient, yeah. Um so what were you going to say? All they're going to want is what? All, all they're going to want in the future is like iPads. They're not even going to want Legos. They're going to be like, just give Gosh, me an you iPad. Think so? yeah, maybe. I don't know. I my, kid, a- my kids aren't getting iPads, so. <laughs> yeah, you'll have yours. Right. And you'll use it right in front of them. I'll be and you'll pl- play fun I'll games. I'll be playing Lego games on it. There and you I'll go. Like, play with your real Legos. Yeah, I earned these digital Legos. And I'll be like, I don't want to. I'm like, you play with those Legos, and I'll crack the whip. So you're going to go the whip method? Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah. Um, So, okay. 
So I was really torn when it came time to talk about this because the fact is we are told over and over again in the Bible and in church and that sort of thing that God will provide for us, that we don't need to worry, we just need to rely on him. You know, he will give us our our daily bread and all that sort of thing. Uh, And I do believe that, but when you're really in it, you know, uh, it's very hard to believe it. But then also you look at some people, Christian or otherwise, who are on the street and, and aren't, and aren't necessarily crazy because incidentally somebody, you know, losing their mind, that is a different issue with God that I occasionally have, um, allowing something like that. Uh, but just people who are just regular people who want to do well and they're on the street or they are living like paycheck to paycheck and maybe that, you know, uh, God says he'll, he'll provide for people, but it often appears. And then that's just in this country, you know, you look at poorer countries around the world. I mean, I've seen terrible poverty in Mexico and stuff like that. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's horrifying and terrifying because mm-hmm. you realize how bad things can be for some people. Yeah. So you look at that and how do we square that with the idea that God provides, you know, uh, and I have a hard time doing it. You know, uh, it's, it'd be easy for me to say like, okay, well, hang on, hang on now. It does say he provides for like those that follow him. So maybe it's that. Maybe these people, by not following God, maybe they're. I'm like, no, wait, no, that's <laughs> God's not necessarily wrathful in that way. Uh, not not so much in the New Testament anyway. Because at that point, you could also make the argument that like, oh, so they're I see they're poor because of their own life choices, you know. But Which is what some people believe. Yeah, and that's and that might be the case in some areas but like maybe to a certain degree but all that's also even the case with uh or that also seems to even be the point of view of some of the uh the pharisees and people that jesus speaks oh, sure. out against in the bible and yeah. people talking about like what did this man do wrong or what did his parents do wrong that he's blind or something like that yeah and it's just uh you know and sometimes things and i, I hope i'm not being too reductive when i say that sometimes things just go bad for people who are doing everything they can to make sure they go well and I don't really know what to say about that. Does that mean God doesn't love them? Of course not. Does that mean God is not in control? Of course not. So what does that mean? But then that speaks to the, that, that winds up speaking to just the larger issue of why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, whether mm-hmm. it be financial or, you know, as far as loss or health or whatever. Um, and the answer is, I don't know. Um, and that's, and, but where that comes into play for us, you know, cause if you're, chances are, if you're listening to this, you're probably doing okay because you're either listening on your iPod or on your computer or something like that. Um, and so like, what does that, ha- you know, when it comes to us, like this idea of, of being assured that we're going to be taken care of. Well, I look at other people and I say, yes, but those people don't appear to be taken care of. So what reason do I have to think that I won't wind up like them in the same way that, you know, uh, when it comes to loss, like I often worry about the, you know, Jen being, getting, getting in a car accident and dying or something like that. Uh, and then people will try to reassure me and say like, you know, God will take care of me. And, and 
my my first and rather cynical response is like, oh, like he took care of uh, my dad or Will Gray or any number of people that I've lost and very, you know, or just the millions of people that die every day uh, before their time. Uh, you know, will he take care of you like that? Because if that's the case, eh, uh, I'll pass. <laughs> you know, and so... Uh, so I apologize if it sounds like I'm being cynical because when it comes right down to it, I do believe that God does provide. I can point to a number of instances in my own life in which he has. I can point to instances in other people's life that I've seen that happen over and over again. And so I do believe that. But of course, when you're in the middle of it, it's amazing how quickly we forget. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I will tell a, a quick story. Um, so back in 2009, I was working at a production company, and I didn't really like my job, but it paid the bills. And then I got laid off. And uh, now the part of me that hated my job was like, awesome, because I wasn't going to quit, but I got laid off. Awesome. Everything's great. But then, then I realized, oh, shoot, money. I need money for uh, food and stuff. And, uh, and so Jen and I looked at our finances and we did not have, we like, it was getting down. Like Jen was, she was a, you know, she still had her own business, but it hadn't quite taken off yet. And so she wasn't going to be able to keep both of us afloat. And I didn't really know where else to go. And I didn't know how long it was going to take. Uh, so I, I applied cause I got laid off. I applied for unemployment. I got a little bit, but not certainly not enough to compensate completely for what I was making. Uh, and in the end, I only wound up getting one check um, because a job fell in my lap and it's the job that I have now um, that has provided so well for Jen and myself. And there have been ups and downs within the job I currently have, but it just fell in my lap. I didn't go looking for it. I was not at all, by the way, uh, qualified for it, but I, it was presented to me. I took it and it's done. It's been, you know, wonderful, but it came in the midst of a rough, rough time because Jen and I were looking at the bank account, realizing, okay, we can pay rent and we'll then have no savings. We will literally be at zero and we won't know what to do. And it was very scary. Um, and then this job came along and it paid way better than my previous job. And in that moment, Jen and I said, like, you know, there have been times when we've felt desperate and God has taken care of us. So let's so let's look now and we'll try to remember this so that if things get bad in the future, we won't be worried again. Uh, that lasted, I don't know, five minutes if that's, I don't know, because since then there we've there have been like tax issues and stuff like that where we discover that we owe way more than our account uh, uh, projected and stuff like that, and then we get cleaned out and then we're scared again. And so you know that's just and then but then something comes along. Jen books like three weddings in a week, <laughs> and they all are very timely with their initial payment. And suddenly it's like okay, we're fi- we're literally fine again. It happened a month ago. I wasn't bringing in a great deal of money. Jen was a little, uh, was, you know, 
kind of slow on bookings and we were getting really scared. Our savings was depleting pretty rapidly and, and we were getting really frustrated. We were arguing a lot with each other about like what we could be doing differently, what the other person could be doing differently. And then finally we just said like, come on, this has happened many times and we're always taken care of. Let's pray about it. Let's do what we can do and see what happens. And we did. And we just started letting it go. And suddenly our marriage got a lot better. Um, and Jen started getting bookings and we just, we were taken care of like we always have been. And, and I apologize if that sounds almost like a brag because there are some people who can say, well, it didn't, it wasn't that easy for me. I had to move out of my house and go live with somebody else. Like, you know, that is the case for some people and that's awful. And thank, and I'm, I'm thrilled that that has not been me. Uh, so if that has been you listening to this, I apologize. Uh, if my example is not comforting. Um, but, uh, but I think one thing that is possible is reassessing our definition of being taken care of. Hmm. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Yeah, I think that's the most important way to look at the whole issue is that we we have to reorient ourselves to understand what what is most important to us from God's point of view because we it it's hard not to look at it from our point of view and oftentimes from our point of view the most important thing is like uh, to have enough for next month's rent or to have enough for you know, to, to pay the car payment or any, you know, any number of things, um, of financial things. Um, even, even health to a degree. I mean, it seems like, you know, you'd say like, well, if you're, if you have a serious illness, like what could be, what could be worse than that? What could you need more than being healthy? And, um, you know, the Bible is constantly saying that God's perspective is drastically different than ours is. Yeah. And oftentimes the most important, sometimes the most important thing for us to, for to happen to us is to be sick for a long time or, uh, you know, to, to have times where we don't, where we don't have any money. Um, sometimes that's because God wants us to rely on him in a, in a different way. Sometimes it's because in the way God's looking at it, we just, we don't need it. He, if he thinks we don't need to pay rent, then we don't need to pay rent, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's very hard to, to understand because we have a very limited view of what we can, what we can know and what we can understand. Um, but if we really believe that we are inside a much smaller bubble, uh, of, the full reality that God can see, then that's where we find a lot of comfort. And, you know, I, I wonder if a lot of our expectations have to do with cultural expectations. For example, you and I are both in our thirties. If something were to happen and, you know, you and, and your wife had to, there's a lot of reasons why this probably would not happen, but you had to move back in with your parents. Let's say your parents lived here instead of on the East coast. Um, and you had to move back in with your parents. Like you would probably one of the first things you would say is I'm in my thirties. 
what went like how could this go so wrong i'm in my 30s i'm living with my parents again and then i'd renounce god obviously you'd renounce god but that's (laughs) that's like i know that's probably what i would think is like i'm a grown man i've been married for almost 10 years what am i doing moving back in with my parents and just like literally listing my station in life and how that how i feel like i've somehow maybe earned independence right um and that and i think maybe that speaks to another thing because there have been times uh in the past where jen and i like that tax thing i told you about Mm -hmm. um we've been hit with something it's like we can pay this technically but we will be completely cleaned out Mm -hmm. and we're not super sure that that is a thing where we would like to be because you know then we literally have nothing uh no safety net no safety net at all for like if we need a car repair or something like that uh so you know we wound up reaching out to my mom for a loan not for you know a freebie or anything like that but for a loan so that rather than pay one chunk immediately we like we borrowed that from her and then paid her back over the course of a few months instead of one fell swoop uh it took me a long time to arrive there because mm. i'm an adult i don't want to go back i don't want to go groveling to my mom for a loan you know right. i should i should i should be able to take care of this myself right and which yeah but as you say that's a uh, that might be a cultural view yeah. uh, there are other cultures where people just kind of uh, there are other cultures where the family unit stays much closer together like where it's normal to live in the home with your parents until 40 or or later where the money is all kind of shared yeah that sort of thing and then there'd be you know there'd be no big deal about it so uh, when we can recognize that even within our world we live in a bubble of what we think is what we think we need and what is expected um, and what we think we, we should have. Uh, If we know that even within our own world, we have a skewed view of that. uh, Hopefully that makes it easier to understand that within the larger scope of reality and uh, you know, comparing what we can see to what God can see, we should be more able to accept that there's, there's probably a different way to look at this. And, you know, and that's the thing is the idea of not being taken care of. I know some people, including me, by the way, um, they often mean that life is not going well or it's it's not going as well as it can go right now. That we're going to have to sacrifice this thing that we wanted to do. Um, and thus, we're not being taken care of, you know. Uh, for and let's let's go back to that example of like moving in with your parents or something like that. There is a bit of a, admittedly culturally, there is a bit of a stigma to it. Yeah. Um, but there's a stigma to a lot of things that the Bible doesn't really care that much about. Um, and so, uh, but that's the thing. If somebody had to move, if somebody like lost their job or you know got sick or something like that and had to move back in with their parents, they could say, "I'm not being taken care of." Well, some people out there may not have any literally anywhere to go they may not have parents they can move in with you are being taken care of you will have a roof over your head it just might not be the ideal situation right Right. so that's a situation that we we can choose to look at as uh lacking something or we can choose to see the blessings in it yeah 
and it could be, you know, there are people out there that get like a second job. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying any of this is okay, is like a, an inherently good thing. It's, it'd be nice if somebody only, if, if someone could make ends meet with only one job. Yeah. And, and be able uh, to keep their apartment and, and have their independence. Like, those are good things. Right. Um, so I don't want to act as though, um, these are all still hard things. Yeah. We can under, we t- totally can understand that. We're not saying that. <laughs> Quit complaining. It could be worse. Exactly. That's yes. that's definitely not the attitude. Yeah. You know, I I would never want to say uh, it sounds like a first world problem to me. <laughs> you know, because there are a lot of people that say that, and it, and what they they say it as a way of saying like uh, you don't get to complain, and which is usually another way of saying I don't want to hear you complain. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that that was a rather broad sweeping statement. I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, That's right. I, I think I just realized that not wanting to hear about people's first world problems is in itself a first world problem. Oh, boy, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, okay. There's a number of Bible verses here uh, that, and I'm going to try, I think I'm going to try and get them all in here, but we'll, we'll see where we go. Uh, the first is a very long passage from Exodus. It's Exodus 16. We're not going to read it all. I will summarize it. Uh, there's a term that people are probably familiar with, and it's it's uh, manna from heaven. And what that is is when uh, you know when the Israelites are wandering around. I'm sorry, are they called Israelites at the time? I think so. Okay. Uh, yes. The Israelites are wandering around the desert, wondering where they're going to get their food, and God says, "All right, at night you're going to eat meat, and in the morning you're going to eat bread, and I will provide it." And so at night he. Uh, brings just a whole bunch of quail to their land, uh, to, to them, and they kill them and eat them and all that kind of thing. Then in the morning, uh, with the morning dew, there's this, uh, this bread-looking stuff uh, called manna that I didn't write it down here, but uh, in its description, it sounded delicious. <laughs> I was hungry when I started writing that down, and I thought, man, that sounds good. Um, and so, but what he says is, Gather up the gather up the manna so that everybody eats whatever it is they need to eat that day. Do not gather up more than you need, and I will take care of you tomorrow. And then on the sixth day, because you know on the seventh day that's the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to work, you're not supposed to be gathering things up. So it's like okay, on the sixth day, go ahead and gather up what you will need for the next day. And what will happen is. Uh, if people gather, if on any of those other days, if they gather up more mana than they need, then that mana immediately goes bad. Sorry. Uh, it's full of maggots and begins to smell, uh, is the description here. Uh, whereas um, when they gather up, you know, the day before the Sabbath, if they gather up enough to cover the Sabbath, that mana does not go bad. Mm. And so he's taking care of them every step of the way. Um, and it's literally this idea of, you know, and we'll be repeating it, uh, later on this idea of the future is scary. 10 years from now is scary. One year from now is scary. One month from now can be scary. Tomorrow can be scary. But as it happens, you don't live in tomorrow. You live today. Not that you don't necessarily live for today. This is not. John Lennon, uh, you're living in today because tomorrow could go a completely different direction that has nothing to do with your plans. Uh, and so, and today I'm going to take care of you. 
so that is that's the the essence of uh, Exodus 16. Uh, I would recommend going in and reading it nonetheless. It's it's still very interesting. Uh, so okay, here's a quote from somebody named Gail D. Irwin. I wish I had written down the book that this person wrote, but I did not. I apologize. Uh, I still and this this has to do with the with manna from heaven and that kind of thing. I still find my corrupt heart longing for tomorrow's bread. I can make a good argument to the Lord about how effective I can be if He would supply me with enough advance funds. It's a little frightening to pray for today's bread. That means I must pray again for tomorrow and believe again for tomorrow. My greedy heart is willing to be corrupted by a little bit of riches so that I see my warehouse full of lo- uh, full of loaves. Sorry. Uh, I can make a good argument about how God won't have to be bothered with me every day if he would only advance me about 10 years worth of bread. Uh, and that is often, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've thought like, man, if I just... I watch a lot of Survivor, and so the idea of some, you know, the winner of Survivor gets a million dollars, and thinking like, man, if I had a million dollars, even after taxes, you get $600,000. Like, if I got $600,000 right now, things would be different, you know? And they would be, certainly. But I act as though that would solve all my problems. But of course, that won't, that doesn't get first off that doesn't guarantee that my house won't be destroyed in an earthquake it doesn't guarantee that jen won't die in a car accident mm. it doesn't guarantee i won't get sick yeah like it, it's it's pe- people <laughs> you just need to take a look around the world that you live in to realize that no one thing is going to make your life perfect like we don't live in a perfect right. world there's nothing perfect there's nobody who's in the perfect situation nobody anywhere so to the idea that a million dollars would fix everything is ludicrous if you look around and see no. the way the world is. Yeah, and just... But we have this idea, we just kind of... We put on this ped, on a pedestal this idea of being taken care of, not merely now, but forever. And once that happens, surely everything will go great, mm. you know? Um, and uh, along those lines, so uh, there's a parable, Luke 12, verses 13 through 21... Someone in the crowd said to him, the him in this case being Jesus, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, okay, so <laughs> are you looking at this? I'm laughing for the same reason you're yeah, laughing, yeah. I think. Okay. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge? Okay. Man, who appointed me as a judge? <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it just seem like a, a certain type of character in a movie? He's it's like, man, who appointed me judge or, or, or an arbiter he's, between you? He's addressing this person as man, but it's it looks like an exasperated yeah. uh, Big Lebowski type of man. <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah. So, uh, but anyway, so he says, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out! Exclamation point. Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? 
this is how it will be with whoever stores things up for themselves but is not rich toward God. And that speaks to this idea of if you have a lot, you know, we put money and security on this pedestal and like if we're being taken care of in the way that we think we should be taken care of, then we'll be fine. But you have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. It could completely take the legs out from under that expectation. So uh, here's a quote from uh, Randy. All all of these are Christian uh, authors, by the way. Uh, uh, Randy Alcorn, abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's his provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with his money not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven, which is something I will bring up real quick. Uh, So there are some people, as I was uh, putting together this uh, episode and, and prepping for that, you know, you have two thoughts in regards to this. One is, why isn't God taking care of me? But then maybe you look around and realize God is taking care of me. And then you realize, well, why isn't God taking care of other people? And, you know, that can be, if you want it to be, that can be a legitimate complaint. But an argument could be made that, okay, so you have a heart for other people and God has taken care of you. All right. So you might be in a position one way or another to take care of somebody else. Perhaps... God is going to work through you to take care of that other person. It could be a homeless person that you see on the side of the road. It could be a charity that you feel particularly passionate about that deals with this specific thing. And so, and you're in a position to give money to it. Maybe not a lot, perhaps more than you're even, maybe just a little bit more than you're comfortable with. But like this idea of God's not providing for these people. And yes, I recognize that I'm in the perfect position to help them, but God's not helping them. Well, he might be helping them through you if you let that be the case. So just want to throw that out there. Uh, here is a, uh, a quote from Coralie Buchanan. When we look to God as provider, we are surrendering our independence. That goes to the thing we were talking about before. Surrendering our independence and trusting someone else to meet our needs over which we have no control. Letting go of our dependence on independence, quotes around that, and letting someone else take control goes against natural human instinct. We need to fight the urge to take over and let God be God because he can provide for us better than we can. And that goes to what you were saying, Josh, about mm. if we, if our definition of being taken care of is based entirely on the world around us, that's actually a very narrow definition. Yeah. Um, but if we broaden it to what God values, mm-hmm. You know, obviously we don't want to struggle and God doesn't necessarily enjoy it when we struggle. Um, but if you have to lose a battle to win a war, so to speak, mm-hmm. then that is what God would rather it be. Yeah. Um, but we could just look at the lost battle and say, screw it and just give up on the war. Right. Which is why God has to tell us things like lean not on your own understanding. Right. So, Okay. There are a number of... Oh, no, that's the last one. Okay. So there's a few more Bible verses here. Uh, there's Philippians, and there's something from Matthew 6, which, Josh, I will have you read. Okay. So Philippian, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. All right. We'll actually move right into Matthew 6. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, for they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All right, so that goes to what we've been speaking about, this idea of today as opposed to tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And it's so much easier said than done, because it's like, you know, oh, tomorrow will worry about itself. And like, well, you might... The thing I always get is like, yeah, but what if I have an appointment tomorrow? <laughs> you know, uh, or what if somebody can't do something today, but can do, but might be able to do it tomorrow? Do I just say like, well, I'll worry about that when that comes up? You know, mm -hmm. does it mean don't plan? Obviously not. Yeah. But the question then, because it says don't worry about tomorrow. Right. You know, the question is not don't plan. It's don't fret over the plans. They might go the way you want. They might not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's, there's a literal, like sitting and worrying about it after you've done everything you can do. There's, li it's literally in God's hands at that point, And there's nothing you can do, but yeah. we act like worrying is an active thing. Like it's going to fix something. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think this, this is one of those passages that I feel like gets misused sometimes, um, as if it's to say, well, if God if God takes care of the birds, then that means He's going to take. Yeah. We take that to mean that He's going to take care of us, like we talked about before, in the way that we feel like we need to be taken care of. Like if God provides food for the birds, that means He's going to provide food for you if you if you follow Him. But that's not really what He's saying. Even He's talking about. He's he's giving the negative example of the pagans in saying, "What shall we eat and what shall we wear?" Yeah. So those those are not like those are not greedy things that people worry about. Those are very basic needs. What do we yeah. eat and what do we wear? And he, <laughs> Jesus is saying, the pagans are the ones who worry about what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear. Yeah. So uh, he's saying it, it's not about uh, this. Is, this is not a passage just saying God's going to give you everything that you want if you if you uh, believe in him mm -hmm. enough. Um, this is a passage that, that is saying, don't worry about those things. Like when you need those things, God will bring you those things because he knows what you need. And when you don't need those things, he won't bring you to the, bring you those things, but worrying about it doesn't change it either way. Yeah. Yeah. And so we'll, uh, we'll wrap up with this. This is Jeremiah 17 verses seven through eight, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that's, that sound, oh, sounds out its roots. I don't know. Sends out? Probably sends out. I think there's a, a, some autocorrect going on here. <laughs> uh, they will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. So uh, I do love that quote. It's one I'm not uh, that that verse. It's one I'm not familiar with uh, enough. 
Um, but yeah, and so I want to make it clear, like, one thing about that verse is it doesn't say no drought will come, and it doesn't say no heat will come. Mm. It just says that this tree will remain. Um, we will run across difficulties, obviously, um, some more than others. I mean, and that, and that's where the issue, that's where an issue can really come in, is when you look at people who haven't, and this is a thing I deal with all the time, mm-hmm. uh, you look at people who haven't had the issues you've had, mm-hmm. and you act like God somehow favors them, or mm-hmm. you get you know resentful of them, or whatever. And this can be in any number of ways, not merely money. Oh, yeah. Um, and that can be very destructive. So if you're thinking that, obviously it's easier said than done to say, don't think that, but like really make the effort. Like if that's happening where you're, you're getting bitter towards somebody because God has blessed as, as you know, blessed them in a way that you wish you'd been blessed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something to like really pray about and really try not to think that as much as you can. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so things will come and it will, and it will for most people, I think, at some point, it will get scary financially. Um, you know, and there are, other, there are other episodes in which we've talked about health and loss, but in this case, we'll talk about finances because that is a big thing that people are thinking about right now. There's a reason Cheap Thrills was made right now because you get people and killing them softly and that sort of thing. You get people that are desperate. They, they want things that are fine. Like they want to take care of their families. They Mm -hmm. want to, to not even live well. They want to get by and they can't, uh, or at least in some cases, not the way that they thought they could. And you know, it's, it is very scary. I'm not saying it won't be, but what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, like God is our hope, not only in certain types of situations. He's our hope in all situations and if you are going through a rough time, there is a reason for it. That's not to say if you're going through a rough time, you deserve it you're, you're, you've done something wrong. It might be you've done literally nothing wrong, but right now there's a reason you, there's a reason you're going through it that will bear fruit sometime in the future, either for you or for somebody else, but at the very least for God. Maybe it's so you can be more dependent on God. Maybe it's so you will be maybe more th- thankful again not to imply you're ungrateful but you'll be more thankful when things start turning up and you realize and you're able to see god's hand in your life uh i have an analogy it's not a great one but uh so i occasionally deal with kidney stones and they are horrible Mm. they are the absolute worst uh and a couple weeks ago um and i haven't had them in years at this point a couple weeks ago, I got one, and uh, you always when, once you've had one, you know when another one is here, and it's just this horrible, excruciating pain that causes you to move constantly. Your body can't help but move because it instinctively is trying to find a more comfortable, less painful position. But the pain is inside you. <laughs> There's nothing you can do but wait, and it is. It, it is excru- you can't sleep you can't and often thankfully i had some pain pills uh but when i first had it i didn't have any pain pills with me and uh the pain gets so bad that your body throws up why cuz it doesn't know what else to do <laughs> uh it has nothing to do with specific nausea and trying to get rid of 
something in your stomach. It's just like your body literally throws up its hands, not your actual hands, but your body throws it, throws up its hands and says, I'm out of ideas. We're just throwing up. <laughs> um, and it's horrible. And in the moment there, you cannot think of anything else. You just think I want this over with, but when it is over with, or perhaps when you've taken your pain pill, uh, it is so glorious and you realize you're back to normal and you come to then realize how valuable normal is. Uh, it's not like, you know, when, when the pain pill takes effect or when you've passed the stone, um, it's not like you're thinking like, well, I'm glad that's over, but you know what? I, w- I really wish I was 10 pounds lighter <laughs> or, eh, you know, I, I feel like my, I wish my receding hairline would, uh, you know, that's really starting to bother me. No, in that moment, you're just happy to be on an even keel and you're so thankful that that is over. And so there might be times, again, it's not a great analogy, but there might be times in your life when things are bad and you cannot think of anything else and it's terrifying and it's painful. But maybe the reason that you're going through that is so when you get out the other side, you will be so grateful, not merely to God, but also maybe to those around you who were able to help you or stood by you or whatever. And quite possibly, you will be in a position to help other people who've been in your position. Incidentally, I do have a friend who had kidney stones, did not have uh, money to go to a doctor and get a prescription. So... I know you're not necessarily supposed to do this, but I gave him a couple of my pain pills and uh, problem solved. Uh, and so, um, so that, and I guess that's maybe the other thing is this idea of looking for the opportunity to bless others. And maybe you're not in a f- financial position to help at all, but if you are, then you can, I can't believe I'm saying this. It sounds like a platitude, but like you can be the change that you want in general for somebody else. You know, you can pay it forward. You can be whatever silly thing you want to say, but, uh, you know, God uses other people to bless you. It could be your parents, it could be your friends or whatever, but he could also use you to bless others. And so, you know, obviously I don't think anybody listening to this, if they're in dire financial straits, I don't think they're going to rob their company, nor do I think they're going to do any of the things (laughs) in cheap thrills. But these are movies about desperation and what people can do in desperate times. Yeah. And the idea is that these people don't have hope. Hmm. And when you don't have hope, if you literally have no hope and you just think, I'm screwed, then the most – even things that you would be morally opposed to, even those sound like a viable option. Yeah. That hopelessness breeds the desperation. Yeah. And so – more than anything I want to say, and, and I don't want to gloss over any difficulties people might be having, but I do want to say we do have hope. We have a God who loves us and wants to take care of us. His definition for taking care of us might be different than ours. It might require, in some cases, humility, asking for money, accepting money if somebody offers it. Living with your parents. Living with your parents. You know, I mean, it's it's rough. It can be rough, but... God is taking care of you, and if you try to accept that and try to understand all the things that could mean, then I think you'll able, you'll be able to see God's hand in your own life, and you'll probably be able to look back over your life and see where He has 
where he is taking care of you. Yeah. So I think that's where we will end it. Uh, this episode is, of course, longer than I wanted it to be, but I guess I should have expected that. Um, okay. So if you have any questions or comments, you can always leave a comment on the post for this episode at morethanonelesson.com. You can email me, Tyler at morethanonelesson.com, or Josh, Josh at morethanonelesson.com, or you could email us both. That's usually fine. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at More Lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. You can also like uh, like us on Facebook. You can sign up for the newsletter and get updates on what we've been doing for the last month. Uh, there are various things that you can purchase on the website, including uh, you know shirts and DVDs and Blu-rays and that sort of thing. Uh, don't forget, if you are in the Southern California area, go to uh, alphaomegacon.com. Look up the details for September 20th, coming to Alpha OmegaCon, and come and visit me at my booth. So thank you all for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye.